time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Hang on a minute. Who put you in charge? And who the hell are you anyway? I'm the Doctor. I'm a Time Lord. I'm from the planet Gallifrey in the constellation of Casterberus. I'm 903 years old and I'm the man who's going to save your lives and all six billion people on the planet below. You got a problem with that? No. In that case... Allons-y! Would you like a jelly baby? My Sarah Episode 15 of Who True Freaks, the Patterson Kimplin film of podcasting. And if you don't get that reference, go look it up as it loosely ties in with the antagonist of today's episodes. My name is Sean Engel, and I love Doctor Who. Yes, that's all trendy and stuff nowadays, but still, I love Doctor Who, from its humble beginnings to its current series, and to try and share some of that love, I'm doing a podcast about it. Again, not a wholly original thing, but I've never been accused of being one who strikes when the iron is hot. And in this podcast, I, along with some incredible podcasting talents, am taking a look at everything Doctor Who. This time out, we're going to be looking at one Doctor who could easily be the most forgotten one, and one who happens to have the highest number of episodes lost to the sands of time, metaphorically speaking. But recently, episodes of this Doctor have been recovered and restored, and that's why we're going to be talking about, today, the serial... Web of Fear, starring the second man to portray the Doctor, Patrick Trott. And with me to discuss this long-lost serial are members of the Who True Freaks family. First out, the one and only Shag. How's it going? Great. I'm really excited to hear who these great podcasters are on this episode. Yeah, well, we'll be getting to those later. Okay. As now, I'm going to be introducing the person who is coming to this show for the first and hopefully not the last time. The one person who looked at Michael Bailey and thought, you know, I could do that number of podcasts and maybe more, Mr. John Wilson. Hey, John, hello, thanks hello. for coming on the show. 
Thank you. Yeah, Shaq, I, I, I appreciate you being here as one of the great podcasters. I'm sorry that uh, it took me so long to get here for you. <laughs> no, seriously, when are the good podcasters going to show up? Uh, <laughs> sadly, sadly, Andrew and Steven, you know, had prior commitments this week. So, yeah, mea culpa. <laughs> you should just be glad that, you know, we're not doing the uh, Colin Baker episode. So I'm, I'm kind of saving that for you, Shag. You can come back next time when we get to do that. You're st- oh, you're looking so wait a forward to First it. First of all, there's n- there's no British people, and you still made me get up at eight in the morning for this crap. Well, <laughs> oh come on, like you wouldn't be talking about Doctor Who at any time during the day, if, even if you weren't podcasting, Shag. I I know you far too. But yeah, we're going to be talking about the uh, Trotton episode, Web of Fear, and this is kind of an interesting one, because for uh, until last year, most of these episodes were completely gone, except for like the first one. Am I right there? Yeah, the first one existed, and then um, you know there were snippets like here and there, clips from other ones that were kind of on bootlegs and whatnot, but that was it. You know, we had uh, we had the that one episode, and we had the novelization, and that's kind of what we all lived through. Mm-hmm. And now there was the audio. A lot of times, what, what would happen is kids would sit next, to, you know, little Andy Leyland would sit next to his TV with his uh, cassette recorder and record the audio of the episode. So that I want to say existed for all of Web of Fear. I think they had all the episodes of that. So they would really release them on uh, audio CD and whatnot with some interstitial narration from like Fraser Hines or something saying, you know, the Doctor enters the room. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, but as far as seeing them, yeah, gone. Yeah, and even even with this one, they had the third episode. They only had stills from the show, and they also had to have some of that visual cue narration saying what was going on. So, it, Yeah, they it, did their own professional reconstruction here, because all we had before was the fan-made reconstruction, and they do a pretty good job with those. But it's this is one of the, I guess, only times we've gotten to see the difference between a reconstruction and a full episode, because... We don't normally get these things back. It was pretty amazing to see just how much story you don't get in those reconstructions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was actually wondering, because I didn't get a chance to check this out, if who did this reconstruction, if it was the fan-based reconstruction crew or if BBC did their own. I would be surprised if they didn't do their own. Hmm. Yeah, because this looked, this looked pretty professional. There was uh, caption boxes that are not really caption boxes, but caption screen grabs that went across the bottom that said... You know what was actually occurring while the still was on the screen. The audio was was really good. It you could you could kind of get what was going on without the captions that were just sort of occasionally in there. But and the photos were nice and crisp, which often doesn't happen with fan reconstructions. That is true, and that's one of the things that I'll talk about you know, when we get into all of this is what the BBC or whoever uh, got these tapes did some of the picture quality especially and it's probably a lot to do with the fact that it's in black and white and a lot of times that Im- those images just look a lot crisper than sort of the color images that that this restoration is just really amazing I was really impressed for something that was lo- supposedly lost and you know found in some archive somewhere how good this serial really looks so yeah this yeah. was a good thing yeah you can uh I, I think the process at least the process used to be called vidfire where they clean up the video mm-hmm. and um i don't know if they still call it or not that you can see on online some places where they'll show you what the video looks like that they found versus what it looks like after they cleaned it up and it's just astonishing mm-hmm. but so they also, you wonder you know, where they get that it's like miraculous how they do it 
I know. I'm, I'm jumping far ahead. We should probably tell people about the story first. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, if you want to, I will go ahead and do my patented synopsis, and we'll get into all of this. So, The Web of Fear was a six-episode serial that aired on BBC from February 3rd, 1968 until March 8th, 1968. It was written by Mervyn Hazeman and Henry Lincoln and directed by Douglas Canfield, edited by Derek Sherwin, and produced by Peter Bryant. The, cl- the cast included Patrick Trotton as the Doctor, Fraser Hines as Jamie, Deborah Watling as Victoria, Nicholas Courtney as Colonel Lethbridge Stewart, Jack Watling as Professor Travers, and Tina Packer as Anne Travers. The story opens with the Doctor, Victoria, and Jamie desperately trying to close the TARDIS doors whilst in flight, having just knocked Salamander into the time vortex. Thanks a lot. Now I know that how that missing and now found serial ended. Nice. Anywho, the TARDIS suddenly stops in space, due to it being ensnared in a sticky-like web substance. Eventually, the web clears, and the Doctor is able to materialize the TARDIS in London Underground. The trio disembarks and finds that the station is deserted, except for a desiccated, web-covered corpse that sits outside the underground entrance. We then cut to a scene of Professor Travers, who is admiring the ominous Yeti robot that is in the collection of one Julius Silverstein. Travers wants to have Silverstein return the Yeti as he says he was working on a control sphere that will activate the beast once more. Silverstein tells the old man and his daughter, Anne, to stuff it, but after the Travers clan leaves, Silverstein is attacked by the now reawakened Yeti. It seems that Anne went after her father to have him help the military find out what was going on in the London Underground, as strange web-like structures are now blocking off major sections of the line. It also seems that this bizarre occurrence has been going on for a while, and the military are planning on blasting their way through some of the web barriers. But the explosives are being disabled by the Yetis with web guns that coat the explosives, dampening their blast. This, of course, is fortunate, as one of the blasts went off just as the Doctor was investigating it, while Jamie and Victoria were being captured by not-quite-yet-unit guards. Eventually, the Doctor makes it to the military HQ and teams up with not-yet-brigadier Alistair Lethbridge-Stewart, and they make plans to stop the Yetis and their web guns. There's a lot of padding and walking around through the tunnels with the British military version of Barney Fife from Andy Griffith, but eventually we learn that the real big bad is none other than the Great Intelligence. The Great Intelligence says he wants the Doctor's delicious, delicious brain juices, unless he, and unless he offers them up, he'll move on to Plan 2 and suck out Jamie and Victoria's brains instead. Being extremely generous, the Great Intelligence give the Doctor and crew 20 minutes to make up their minds. Luckily, the Doctor and Anne have been working on their own control spear, which they're able to place into a passing yeti and take control of it in hopes of using it later against the Great Intelligence. Eventually, the Doctor and his companions are herded into Piccadilly Circus, where the Doctor is placed in a giant plastic-wrap-covered, mind-sucking pyramid. But before the Doctor can be turned into a British version of Chris Honeywell post-Grateful Dead show, Jamie has the servile yeti attack the others, and Sergeant Arnold, who was conveniently a reanimated corpse controlled by the intelligence, while others pull the Doctor out of the pyramid. This royally P.O.'s the Doctor, as earlier he had reversed the polarity of the brain-sucking helmet that would have drained the intelligence's intelligence sorry, into him. Because of Jamie's actions, the day was saved, but the great intelligence was simply dispersed into space. Crisis averted, the Doctor, Jamie, and Victoria head back to the TARDIS for another adventure in time and space. The end. 
Okay. What have we got on this, ladies and gentlemen? Or gentlemen? Well, first of all, I thought you were going to say that he wanted his yummy, yummy hostess fruit pies <laughs> instead of brain juices, because I've been listening to too many Tales of the Justice Society of America episodes lately. But um, but I really dug this episode, this story. It's, it's a highlight of 60s Doctor Who. Um, a lot of 1960s Doctor Who is, is, is relatively actionless, and you're just going on story and character. And this is, sure, it has plenty of that. And like you said, there is some padding, but there's suspense there's the dark mysteries of the tunnels there's some great set pieces going on here and and the yeti for yep. all of their uh, glowy eyed teddy bear goodness they're they're pretty <laughs> menacing yeah i'll agree for that there's a lot of elements of this that really sort of harken back to a sort of give me a kind of hammer four vibe especially the opening serial where um trappers it's is at silverstein's uh home trying to get uh trying to get the yeti for his own there's a there's a lot of lighting, the sort of uh, candle placement and all that that really leads you to a feel like this has got a hammer horror vibe. And I like, again, we've commented on this on the show that Doctor Who can be a myriad number of things. It can be comedy, it can be horror, it can be sci-fi, it can be action, and you get a real horror vibe at the beginning of this. So I really enjoyed it. I have that same note. It's exactly what it felt like, uh, Sean. I couldn't couldn't think anything but that now also add to that there's creepy music playing too Mm -hmm. it was just a really really well directed scene that opening i mean just you're on edge you can't help but get pulled into the story i thought that was a great way to start the episode well and you get the you get the sort of reveal of the control sphere looking in the window that would also kind of uh, harken back to that um that sort of dracula type feel of dracula looking in on his on his victim that he's going to suck the blood from so it's it's really good setting up the idea of this being a really scary thing and it also another thing that i've heard is really scary about that even though they couldn't get the ability to film in london london underground setting this in a familiar place where all this frightening stuff is happening has got to be even more unnerving for people watching this during uh, its initial airings. Mm-hmm. You, you've heard the story on that, right? They they asked for permission to film in the London Underground. For for those Americans who don't know what we're talking about, the subway system. Anyway, they asked for permission to film there. They were declined permission, so they went and built their own sets. After airing of the episode, they got in trouble with the, whoever the transit authority is over there, basically accusing them of breaking into the stations at night and filming illegally because their sets were so realistic. Mm-hmm. So, which I think that's hysterical. That's so, great. And I also agree, yes, having a... In John Pert, we had a famous line where he would say, having a Yeti... Um, you know, basically having aliens on Earth in a familiar setting was scarier than seeing aliens in space. And his famous line was something about, like, walking in and seeing a, a, a Yeti on the loo, the toilet is scarier than seeing it on a spaceship. Mm-hmm. So, oh, I agree, and that 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 definitely helps in this episode because, yeah, the Letty, the the Letty, the Yeti are just kind of lumbering, giant teddy bears, like John said. <laughs> but but the fact that you set them in a a normal setting where like you can encounter them, you know, on your trip to work, just makes it all that more unnerving. Yeah, I think they look kind of like owls to me that's like when i look at the like guy I, I watched a lot of this with my 14 year old stepson and i asked him i said you know what do you what do you think the yeti look like he said they look like birds and then i was already thinking they look like shaggy owls to me yeah the, you know now that i think about that i don't know how how much like uh dungeons and dragons you may have played but there's this thing called the the owl bear i think 
mm. which kind of, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, kind of has a look of the Yeti from this serial. So, you know, if you have any reference to that, you know, that series of games, you might not kind of idea, have an idea of what the Yeti looked like. They were it's definitely worth- less snuggly looking than they were in their previous incarnation. And we do see a transition between the old Yeti and the new Yeti, which I'm not entirely sure was as smooth as it could have been but it does tell the audience you know it does give us the information we need that this is what you knew and this is what we're using now because all of those old models and suits are torn up I, it's funny you know i didn't get that what that's what they were showing us i at first i thought they were just showing us you know here's the the the, the dummy you know and here's a guy in a costume i thought that's what it was just a crappy transition i didn't realize it was supposed to be till later they were showing us that the yeti had changed looks what john's referring to folks is this is actually a sequel the original episode uh, or the, the the i guess the first appearance of the yeti was in the abominable snowmen which was i can't remember if it was this season or the season before someone knows they're yelling at their uh, zona phone to, to what the answer to that i one believe is. i believe it was this season because it was a it was a few episodes before before this one aired Okay, so it's it's the, you know the same bad guys uh, have returned, and yes, they as John just indicated, they completely redesigned the costumes. And I personally, I like these Yeti better. It's it's a good look, you know. It's giant lumbering monsters, and you know I've heard that yeah, a lot of times they really didn't hold up. I know recently we did the the five doctors, and you know they were talking about bringing one of the Yeti costumes out of mothballs to to show in the five doctors, and the fact that it had pretty much decomposed to such a point that they weren't able to use much anything of it other than a hand to sort of reach around and grab one of the doctors you know just kind of says how <laughs> well maybe maybe it says about the budget limitations the show had that they really couldn't store or create these costumes really well but you know on this on this show the yetis really do, do look very menacing they do look very frightening and they the, they do elicit that sense of fear how many to, those- uh, to, to, to put closure on the mystery, it had been three stories ago that we had the Abominable Snowmen, so that ended three months before this one started. It's the same season, just a little bit later. Okay. Wow, that wasn't long at all. I wonder how many of those Yeti costumes they made, because like early on, I was watching thinking, okay, this is sort of, this is Dalek philosophy. You never see more than three on screen at the same time. And But towards the end, I swore like, like one or two scenes where there were like six of them or something. I was like, huh. Yeah, I think during the mass attack upstairs, I think I counted four on screen at once. Mm-hmm. Okay. When the doctor was going to get the parts or the bits and pieces as he used to create the control or to fix the control sphere. Yeah, there were there were a few, you know, I might have counted like a total of maybe six altogether. But I do remember exactly seeing like at least four on screen at one time. So okay. they, they spent some good money in getting these costumes together. And they did some really great camera work, making you feel like there was a whole horde of them up there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's 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 kind of the show, the show as little as possible type of aspect. You know, you you show a few, and you then you cut cut away to another scene. And you show the same ones. It gives that sort of feel that there's a massive enough, massive number of them coming. Yeah, you have them coming out over here. Then you cut to another door, and there's more. They're the same ones are coming out over there, and. Um, do we want to get into talking about uh, specifically this doctor and you know uh, which guys thought about him and uh, sort of his uh, role in the whole Doctor Who universe? Sure, John, you want to go first? Sure, I'll go on that because because when it comes to classic Doctor Who, Patrick Troughton is my doctor. Yeah, uh, I I am a relatively new Who fan, not as new as the new Who fans, but um, I was. 
I was a lot of my Star Trek books, online fan talky friend forum people were into Doctor Who, and I thought I'd go and find out what this whole Doctor Who thing is about. So being the OCD person that I am, I started downloading the very first William Hartnell stories and watched through all of those. And then I got to the Patrick Troughton stories. I was watching through those as much as you can because, of course, you either have to um, listen to the audio or watch a reconstruction for, I think, 75, 80 percent of his stories. Of his three seasons, two of them are almost completely gone. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just I really, really like his portrayal of the doctor after having William Hartnell go from really suspicious evil old man to daughter and grandfather you have this 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 huge ball of energy coming out of Patrick Troughton and he's mysterious and he's kind of clownish but at the same time he, he whenever it comes to business he doesn't play and it's the, the thing I loved about getting this show back was being able to see more of his face acting because he has an amazing face um, it, and I'm not going to say that. I was, yeah, yeah. He kind of has an amazingly ugly face, but it just Aww. it gyrates. No, 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 no. A beautiful kind of way, like 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 it gyrates and it moves, and and his eyebrows are big and bold, and his nose is there, and it's just like not ugly in a in a, in a non beautiful sense, but just like just like a really animated face. Well, ugly yeah. was the wrong word, I, I, but you know what I mean. It's just like it's it's really fun to watch him act. Yep. And um, and the the characters that he has with him, the companions and stuff are all great. But I really, really do like this era of Doctor Who, and I'm so glad that we got two serials back from him because it's just really fun to watch. I think uh, you, uh, this, oh, go ahead. still photos don't do him justice. I think you mentioned before Shag that uh, the current Doctor, well, not current, but uh, Matt Smith basically said that he took a lot of his cues for his portrayal of the doctor from Patrick Trotton. And I would, I would put to, uh, I would compare what John is saying about this doctor, about Trotton to Smith. Uh, You know, a lot of people, you know, when I first saw Matt Smith's uh, photo for him being the doctor, I thought he looked a lot like just like a sort of young Peter Boyle. He had that really square sort of Frankenstein look. And it's not an attractiveness. It's a uniqueness that I think uh, both him and Trotton bring to the character. It's I understand what John's going for in the look. It's just a sort of different look, but it's very expressive and, and very, again, very unique. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I was I was in, I was teasing you when I said, oh, no, he um. He certainly wouldn't be on the CW nowadays. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. He has almost like I always thought of it as sort of a hound dogish look, just because you know he's got a little bit of jowls going on. He's got a little bit of puffy eyes. I mean, but he his expressiveness, as you said, his face acting is is bar none like the best. He he's so good. He tells so much with just a little hmm look on his face, whether it be. Uh, thinking in you know curiosity or sad he even does like cute fake sad faces and stuff and he's fantastic i'm matt smith yes based his portrayal on patrick trotton he saw pat matt smith saw tomb of the cybermen called up stephen moffat and said that's how i want to play the doctor you know that's that's my key for figuring out this character certain it wasn't just the bow tie i mean he he took a lot of the expressiveness from patrick and then made it his own and for me growing up i i read the crap out of this book this is one of the first novelizations I owned. Not being able to watch the episode as a kid. When I say as a kid, I'm talking like uh, 
30 plus years ago you know I this story to me was always like the mythical one I wanted to see the most the Yeti were kind of my villain that I loved them I always would latch on to the, the unknown characters on the not everyone would love the Daleks the Cybermen I wanted to like the guys that no one else liked um, you know I guess I was just counterculture back then so, I don't so know so you were all into the Raston warrior robot weren't you the the silver you know dancing one wasn't that I don't want to say anything, but I'll just say my wife likes my cosplay of it. Oh, anyway, um, so for me, seeing this and seeing, as you said, his expressiveness and seeing the Yeti, you know, it was just I was I was a kid in candy store watching this thing, man. Unbelievable! I was so excited. One of the good examples of what you mentioned about the just the subtle way that his faces can change. His face can change is that towards the end, uh, whenever the Great Intelligence is talking to him and he mentions his TARDIS. His face goes very slightly from all seriousness to very pleased with himself. And then it goes back to seriousness again because he's dealing with a threat. But it's maybe just a couple of millimeters in his eyebrows and his cheek or something. But it's just you you can see the actor play with just his face expressions. Mm-hmm. Well, and he also does a good job uh, of portraying the idea that he's being kind of secret about this because, you know, he's keeping from his companions the idea that, you know, he's essentially reversed the polarity on the brain device. I mean, he said he rewired it, but reversing the polarity is pretty much the, the, <laughs> the you know, the, the shorthand you use for what you do when you're going to mess with the villains on Doctor Who. So uh, he, he, per- he brought that across really well of not letting his companions or the people he's working with in what his secret uh, plan for defeating the intelligence was. And he really pulled that off at the end, you know, that he didn't want to get removed from the pyramid and, you know, that he actually had something that was going to destroy the intelligence if it weren't for, you know, Jamie pulling him out of there and screwing it all up. <laughs> now, now, while we're at it, do we want to go ahead and, uh, speaking of Jamie, do we want to go ahead and go into talk about the companions on the show a little bit? Sure, Was, sure. Wasn't he voted best legs of 1966 or something like that? Oh, Fraser Hines? Yes. You know, I think there was a TV, uh, TV, TV. Uh, what do they call their TV guide over there? Um, uh, what, I'm blanking. But go ahead. Whatever the hell it's called. They had some sort of contest about, you know, different categories of attractiveness on television. And the best legs category had several female contenders. But Fraser Hines took it. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> With That's his just twisted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, like I've said, you know, a lot of the stuff from this era I haven't seen, so this is kind of like one of my uh, first outings with the Patrick Trot and Doctor Who, and I liked Fraser Hines as Jamie, but I really didn't get what he was going for. What's the deal with Jamie? He didn't have a lot to do in this one. Uh, okay. He was often in the background, wandering around the hallways with that that crazy-eyed coward boy. Um, oh, Evans. Yeah, Evans. That's his name. Which uh, I thought was, he was delightful. He he was an uh, an awesome coward. <laughs> he was like I said, he was the Barney Fife of this episode. I mean, like everything, you know, everything frightening that went on. He was there with his own little quip about it, and you know how he didn't want to get involved in it. You know, it was. It was delicious. Talk, talk about great face acting. That guy Evans. Oh my gosh! If you just wa- I could watch his face on you know with mute all night long and just laugh my butt off. <laughs> he was so funny. Well, and he's got that sort of stereotypical. I don't know whether it's Irish. It's not. I don't know what specific uh, you know accent it is for the UK, but it's it's a very different accent than what we got for a lot of the characters, like the like the brigadier or the uh, 
the guy who was eventually found to be the one who was taken over by the intelligence. So. Yeah. I'm putting my finger on Welsh. That might be it. Well, I, I liked all their accents. All the soldiers had really great accents. And, I, and I'm not an Anglophile enough to know them, but like you said, but they all sounded very blue collar. You know, which is exactly what you want. In, in, you know, in kind of a grungy soldier down there fighting in the trenches. You want a, an everyman to be saving. You know, fighting for the country. And so they all sounded very blue collar, and I just thought that was really great. I like that. And then Staff Sergeant Arnold, whenever he becomes the intelligence, his accent goes away, and he becomes yep. received pronunciation London. You know, it's 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 it was pretty phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um. So uh, since I'm kind of uh, clueless, which isn't a surprise to anyone, about the uh, companions here, what's yep. the deal with uh, Jamie and Victoria? How did uh, they come to be on the TARDIS? Well, the, the deal with Jamie is uh, back with let's, we're going to have to go back a step to the original Doctor, William Hartnell. William Hartnell was an elderly gentleman, and so they usually would pair him with a younger male to sort of be the action character. And that's where you would get, you know, uh, Ian Chesterton or Steven Taylor or, you know, stuff like that. In this case, I don't know whether they were just following the same formula or they were just play, impressed with Fraser Hines, but during their second story, which is called The Highlanders, Jamie, the character Jamie was in it, he was really only supposed to appear in Highlanders and that was it. But for whatever reason, and I'm sure it's documented someone I just somewhere I just don't remember off the top of my head, he was hired to stay on. And so he sort of played the action oriented part of the, the when the when the TARDIS team would go out. Jamie would be the one to fight the bad guys. Jamie would, like, in the fisticuffs or pulling the knife or whatever we need to do because, you know, the doctor doesn't do that. The doctor doesn't punch people, you know, heaven forbid. So that's where Jamie came in, and they became best friends, not just as actors but as characters. There were so many scenes where the doctor and Jamie would just be cutting up and cracking jokes and stuff, and it is hilarious to watch them throughout all their seasons. They're, they're one of the most they're one of the most beloved doctor teams that's ever been and I'll tell you with the new series they've done so much with girls with women that and, and you know I would almost count Rory but the doctor and Rory never really connected Rory was really just Amy's husband if they could get an, a male buddy on the series for the doctor I think that would be a really interesting dynamic you know what I would love to see and this is just sort of fan wankery on my part I know Capaldi was in a band with uh, what's his name from lately, Craig Ferguson. Mm-hmm. If they could get Capaldi and Craig Ferguson, even even if just for a show together, because I've heard they have a great dynamic. And personally, I just love Craig Ferguson as a as an actor and as a comedian as a character. So if they could work something out, like, but yeah, uh, having having a a male companion that's actually someone who's you know an important part of the Doctor's life like this would be would be kind of it. It shake things up because yeah, it has been in New Who essentially the Doctor and his female companion, whether it be Rose, whether it be Amy, whether it be Donna, you know, and all that. So you switch it up a bit. That'd be kind of neat. It's also always been female companion from early 21st century. Mm-hmm. Whereas Jamie, you know, he's from I think it's the 1700s, and Victoria is from jeez, oh, I don't remember, but but both his companions at this point in in the show are from the far past. That's cool. And it's an interesting dynamic because he knows Jamie better and he has a better rapport with Jamie. But in this particular case, Victoria is just slightly ahead of Jamie in her understanding of the world because she's Victorian era. She's not 1500s Scottish Highlands. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I got but, my dates wrong. Good call. But I do, I do love the dynamic between the Doctor and Jamie. Um, I think that Ben and Polly were still left over from the last Harnell season. 
uh, and they were kind of around doing their thing, which didn't really allow Jamie the chance to shine in season four as much as he might have done. But even by the end of that season, once Ben and Polly are gone, you watch the evil of the Daleks, and the Doctor and Jamie just have a lot. Their their moments really start coming out. Um, the Tomb of the Cybermen, whenever. Whenever the the doctor and Jamie and Victoria are about to walk into the building, the doctor holds out his hand ostensibly to take Victoria's hand and guide her in because this is her first adventure. And Jamie takes his hand and he's like, "Oh, not you, Jamie!" and throws his hand down. and And uh, it's there's just lots of great little moments like that. They walk into the Emperor Dalek and talk about the size of his balls. It's just amazing. Well, you know the. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of like, that's a big one, isn't it, Doctor? It certainly is, Jamie. Um, the the bit with them holding hands, that was actually, the actors made it up on set and didn't tell the director and just did it because they knew they were only going to get one shot. They were going to get in trouble for clowning around, and they did it, and they pulled it off, and they kept it in the episode, which is nice. great. They also, they also had a habit, apparently, where Fraser Hines and Patrick Trotton, like when they'd be in the TARDIS, about to walk out for a scene with, with the female actress, whoever it might be, <laughs> They did this to Wendy Padbury, who went on to play Zoe. They're standing there, all three of them ready to go, and right as the director goes, action, they yanked down her pants. And they all just walked out and acted the scene like normal. And she came running out, you know, in her underwear, basically, and uh, ended up running into a a priest or a vicar, and uh, was totally embarrassed. And that's the kind of hijinks they would play on the set all the time. Well, the number of times you run into a priest and a vicar or a vicar with your pants down isn't uncommon. Um, True that. One of the things I'd like to talk about, and this is kind of another significant thing about this serial, is the introduction of Nicholas Courtney as, at this time, Colonel Lethbridge Stewart. Let's talk about that, because, you know, uh, Courtney will go on to basically be with the show, uh, even in spirit, up to the current episodes. I mean, having him show up in this show and he's essentially the same character well he is the same character that you'd get to see in in later iterations of the show and i thought he was brilliant in this it was just he he sold the role from the very beginning it's interesting is i didn't notice this i was reading up on it later i didn't think about it the 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 doctor and colonel lethbridge stewart meet off screen you never actually see them meet because by the time he shows up in episode three uh, he walks in with already, the doctor. He's already met the doctor. So how interesting is it that the doctor's best friend, which is what the brigadiers often refer to as, his, his best friend across you know almost every generate regeneration he's had, we never actually saw their meeting. That's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. And he and comes they, in as a figure of suspicion in this story. I mean, they bring him in. He he and the doctor, uh, you know, they've met, but there's not a whole lot of trust going on there. And episode three is where they bring in the idea that somebody in the group is working for the intelligence. And so the colonel's mysterious appearance doesn't really add a whole lot of confidence to his mem- being a part of the group. So it, our, our famous, you know, Lethbridge Stewart brigadier person is actually possibly a bad guy in the first time he appears. Mm-hmm. And they, they sold that really well. They kind of gave they kind of seeded the idea of, you know, we don't know exactly who could be behind this and, you know, things are going wrong. So it, it does lead to you to think that this person who just showed up at, you know, in the middle of the third serial of this could be the person who's behind, you know, controlling the Yeti and everything. So it, it was good to sort of have that there is to lay a little doubt to what the motivations of the colonel would have been. 
I, I, I a lot of times you have to watch a show either because you've watched it before or whatever, and you kind of have to suspend disbelief and just go with it. Like if you watch Star Wars, you know you have to kind of forget that Luke and Leia are brother and sister in the first two films, and you can do that. Sorry, spoiler. Um, but in this case, I could not set aside my ability to not know who the Brigadier's future where you I, where you're supposed to suspect him. I just couldn't do it. I like I couldn't see. Like, I couldn't program my brain to think that way. I'm like, no, of course it's the Brigadier. He's not the bad guy. And, uh, well, it's, it's just... the mustache powers overcoming your disbelief. It was what? His mustache powers. <laughs> you know, he has mustache powers. He is He's such a good actor. He comes on the, on the scene, and he just commands the scene. You can't help but give not, not only give him your respect like a soldier would or something, but like just as a, as a fan or a, someone watching the show, he's just so sharp. He's got a great commanding presence, great voice. He doesn't do a lot of face acting like Trotton, but it's something else about his posture and the way he carries his voice. He, I, bet he, I bet he had an amazing career as a voice actor because he just, he could nail every single line. He was so good. Yeah, and as the military people went through, most of them were pretty forgettable. Well, except for Evans, because he was just such a coward. But most of the military leaders really didn't have all that presence. When when Courtney stepped in as the colonel and you know started barking orders, you felt that he was this guy who was going to be the person who who, who led this group and got us out of this situation. So yeah, having him and this being his first foray into Doctor Who and his first uh, bunch of serials is just incredibly amazing. He just really does sell the character here. Believe it or not, it's actually his second foray into Doctor Who. Oh, what did he do? He was in the Dalek Master Plan. Okay. He's played... He didn't play um, Brigadier. He didn't play Lethbridge Stewart. He played a completely different character. Oh, that's right. Brett Viren or something like that? The name's escaping me. He played basically like a super spy who got killed by his own sister, I believe, who went to Sarah Kingdom, or... Is that right? Sarah who Kingdom, on, yes. Yeah, who went on to be a companion, for sort of, kind of. And um, so he, yeah, he, he had been on the show before. So he actually acted with Trotton. I'm sorry, acted with Hartnell first. Then he acted with Trotton and Pertwee. He acted with every single one of the Doctors, except for the sixth Doctor. He then did, was able to do that on audio. But So yeah. he got to act with all the classic Doctors. And you said that he, his spirit was with the show up until the end. You know, he actually appeared as the Brigadier on the Sarah Jane Adventures. Oh, yeah. So he did get to come back in a sense, uh, just not on the main Who series. I, I don't I, understand why they never got him on there, but at least they got him on Sarah Jane. Yeah, well, and uh, I, there was that wonderful reference uh, that, that they made in, oh, was it the was it the Big Bang? Or it was one oh. of the season enders. Heartbreaking. Uh, uh, you know, where they, where they mentioned that... Uh, the the person who's in charge of unit right now is is the daughter of Colonel Lethbridge Stewart and you know just mentioned how he was off on holiday and it was just it was such a nice sort of it was a nice homage to him passing it was just great actually they did another one too before that the when he actually passed they had a scene where Matt Smith's doctor was being sort of pissy and mad and wanted to go adventure and didn't want to be I think it was during season seven where he knew he was supposed to die. Mm-hmm. So he picks up his phone and dials and goes, you know, like, he's calling, which you find out is, like, the, the convalescence home or wherever, where Brigadier is in his older years. And he's calling them saying, get him dressed, get him ready to go, we're going dancing, we're going out in the town, I won't have it, no, no. And then he has to stop and listen to the nurse or whoever who tells him that he passed. Yeah. And it's just, you know, they that's basically their way of acknowledging that the, the Brigadier died on the show. And it just, oh, it just got me so hard. Yeah, I mean, it was, I, I will admit, it was kind of 
it was kind of tough hearing that both uh, Courtney and uh, Sarah Jane, you know, it just it, they they came so quickly after each other. I think it was just a matter of months. And I'm sorry to break the whole conversation down, but you know, it's 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 one of those things. These people, you know, play such an important role in these characters. You know, make these characters come to life. And you know, when you hear them passing, it's really really difficult to deal with. You're gonna make me cry again, you asshole. I'm sorry. Um, well, now, here, let's, let's before we let's hold on. Let's talk about characters some more. Um, Victoria. We haven't really done Victoria yet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't we all like to? Um, <laughs> I know Fraser Hines liked her. The uh, the most important thing to talk about with her is that the actress named Deborah Watling, her father, uh, I forget his name, but he played Professor Travers. So. In Abominable Snowman and in this episode, her dad is actually on set with her filming as Professor Travers. And when this episode was lost, you know, as we said, and found recently, she got to watch it, you know, along with everyone else at, at the, like a big press screening or whatever. And here she is, think about it, some 40 years on, her dad has passed away. And suddenly they find video footage of her and her father acting together. Could you imagine what that would be like, finding footage of you and some you know, relative that you loved and had lost and being able to watch, you know, two hours of you two together doing stuff. And that would just be so yeah, moving and such a wonderful like. gift. My throat would hurt. I'd have tears on my face. I'd be sobbing in my... Yeah. Yeah. That'd be hard to do. But, but, what, a, but what a wonderful gift at the same time, though, you know? Yeah, I, that, it, it really was nice. And they even had a few moments together. I, I mean, there was another character who was playing uh, Travers, uh, who was playing... Oh, Dr. Travers. Yeah, Dr. Young, Travers. Young what's Travers. his name? Jack Watling's... Uh, and and yeah, yeah, playing his uh, daughter, but there were some scenes where uh, Deborah got to actually be with her father and act with him, and you know, it's. I agree, it's got to be one of those just moment that you know, to use the uh, phrase that the kids use today, you know, just hits you in the feels, and you know, uh, just knocks you down. But the, you get to see this and you get to experience this again after thinking that these images and these uh, were were lost to time. So it's great, you know. It's a- it's all summed up with the first scene where Victoria sees Professor Travers and realizes who he is. Like her face, I mean, she's just acting for the scene, but she has this amazing look of wonderment on her face as she's as she's looking at him. And it just sort of, to me, sums up probably how Deborah Watling felt in real life seeing this footage of her father. So, mm-hmm. so sweet. That takes us back to the idea that this is a sequel story because this is something that you would think would be part and parcel with the concept of Doctor Who, revisiting characters and concepts uh, a finite number of years down the road, you know, a, a reasonable number of years. And and the show practically never does this. It never really uses time travel as a plot device within a story. It's just how you get to the story. It's like Quantum Leap. The sci-fi element is just a backdrop. It's getting you to the story and then you're doing something new. Um, but the time travel here, you're actually getting to see other characters that you've seen before 40 years down the road and see what's going on. And that's something that we just, I thought was really handled effectively here. Yeah, I totally agree. And they really did a ju- good job making him look older. He played a really great grumpy old man. <laughs> His <laughs> eyes were just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, about face acting. And he also, you know, he also had that sort of not really Alzheimer's, but that old man crankiness about him. Yeah. I mean, and he had the stuttering type thing going on. It was just a really great portrayal by uh, by Watling. I thought it was really good. You know, one thing I had to mention too, since we're talking about Victoria, in the very beginning, when the TARDIS is sort of out of control, 
and they're let you know and they're supposed to be holding on for dear life and they're rolling around mm-hmm. I, i'm pretty sure patrick trotten was playing grab ass there with victoria i mean they were doing some leg wrestling there and then jamie jumps into it yeah it's, it's, it's pretty bad it's gonna turn to the most uncomfortable three-way on the set uh, yeah well then i'm certain that the the, the actors might not have minded that but this it's was funny, the 60s. You forget whenever the camera's tilted and looks like they're falling and everything, they're just lying on the ground writhing next to each other. That's all they're doing. Right. <laughs> uh, uncomfortable. I, I think it was you, Sean, or it was me, Luke, Jack and Andy, that recently posted this great Star Trek picture uh, uh, that had been stabilized. So Star Trek stabilized. Yeah, where they show people flopping around the set of the Enterprise that's being, you know, blasted and, you know, how everyone would be like, lean! They'd all fall over and over. Well, someone had stabilized the shot. So you can see what it looks like with them just literally throwing themselves around the set. It's hysterical, <laughs> and that's kind of what you have to envision here too. Uh, I will admit, and it's not because I know that these shows were shown serialized and they weren't uh, expected to ever go to video or re- have any replayability. That the opening scene basically ruins what happened at the end of the previous serial, The Enemy of the World, which is another one of these uh, recovered series of episodes. But, you know, I, I guess I can deal with that. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm certain it doesn't completely ruin it, but, you know, knowing that Salamander got thrown into the time stream is just, you know... Yeah, you can't expect the search for Spock to not ruin the fact that Spock died in the previous movie. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it also, if you think about it, it works well for their perspective, because... They would do cliffhanger endings every month or every every week, and if you complete a story and end it without a cliffhanger, what's the guarantee someone's going to come back next week? Very so true. You, you complete the story of End of the World with a cliffhanger, which leads you into the next one. So it's it's a nice way to you know they brought that back for the Peter Davison era. They used to do that quite a bit. They would end a serial on a cliffhanger, so you'd still come back the following week, kind of similarly. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, the thing with Victoria is that she has a really great opening story with the evil of the Daleks because they go to Victorian England and a nice, a really nice segue out of the previous story, the faceless ones, the faceless ones, the evil of the Daleks make a really interesting two-parter in the way that they're uh, connected. But they go to Victorian England and she's being held prisoner by the Daleks and they rescue her. And in the course of the rescue, she comes along on the TARDIS. Um, and after that, she starts becoming less interesting. There's the whole wonder element at first, but she basically becomes the screamer. And it's really prevalent in the Ice Warriors. Mm-hmm. That's basically her only line, is to scream. <laughs> yeah. She does really well in the Web of Fear. For all that Jamie doesn't get to get as much screen time, I think that Victoria does really well in the Web of Fear. So this is a highlight for her. But she, as lovely as she is as 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 a female actress um she's not one of my favorite companions i can totally see that i um she she's eye candy ultimately at the end of the day that's why they what they used her for which is unfortunate because she does have a broader range but yeah most of her acting was done screaming she would she joked around she says her nickname was leather lungs because that was her job on doctor who was to scream and uh, even to this day, I mean, she knows that. I, I saw her at Gallifrey One this year, and she was talking about how she, you know, she screamed when she started on the show, and she screamed her way out of the show, and that <laughs> was her job. But you know, it's it's she's I don't know. I, it, when it comes down to the Trotten area, my favorite companion team is Jamie, the Doctor, and Zoe. Actually, that that they they do a great great season together from the wheel in space at the end of season five through the end of season six. 
That yep. was an awesome trio. Yeah, really. And was. that's when you get a lot of jokes at Jamie's expense because now the Doctor has a futuristic, hyper-intelligent female companion with him. And Jamie, he becomes sort of the lovable doof because yep. there are a lot of jokes at, at his expense when it comes to his knowledge base and understanding of things. You know, for everything they did to minimize Victoria, it's interesting in this episode, they really did sort of try and push a, uh, an equality for women in the character of Professor Ann Travers. Or Dr. Yes. Ann Travers. Yeah, I mean, the she professor's was, the guy, doctor's the girl. Sorry, yes, Dr. Ann Travers. I mean, they, they point out she's a doctor. She's very snarky about it when, when the captain's flirting with her, asking her, how you know, how did you get to do this? And she's like, I wanted to be a doctor, so I became one. You know, she she's very smart. She I love the way she handles the the journalist, Chorley, she just totally walks all over him. I mean, she kind of operates like a companion throughout this episode, and she's intelligent, and she helps save a lot of the different, you know, action scenes, so... I, think I did wonder good. if they were slating her for possible companion role, because it's about that time of year where they'd be, they'd be shopping around to see who's going to come on next. It's only... It's not the very next story, but the story after that, that Zoe comes along. Yeah. But they did a nice job. I mean, you kind of get that feeling. You're absolutely right, that she might join the TARDIS. Yeah. You guys, um, so speaking of other characters, uh, like jur- the journalist Chorley, I adored this character. He was so smarmy, and so yeah, like just you want you love to hate him. I thought mm-hmm. that actor did an incredible job with that character. I he just yeah. strikes. He, that's how I envisioned every BBC journalist from the sixties. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, before our, before we did this, you uh, sent me a copy of the. Uh, of the target novelization of this. And I could have sworn in reading the target novelization novelization that truly had a much bigger role in this. And maybe I'm just misremembering a bit of this, but even, but even though he wasn't really on screen all that much, every time he was, he did sort of bring that very smarmy, very smug type feel of, you know, I'm a member of the press. I need to know what's going on type thing. And um, am I wrong in that? Did he have more of a role in the on the, in the novelization? Ooh, I haven't read the novelization since the 80s. Okay. Um, I read it a lot, though, at the time. You know, I, I can't answer your question, but I can speculate. Okay. Because Pat, uh, Terrence Dix wrote that novelization course he did and he wrote it from basically the script they would get a hand they would get their hands on the script or what notes someone had on the episode and he would just create it so there's stuff probably whole cloth that he made up i'm sure okay he just had to fill in the gaps because they didn't you know there wasn't like they had really grainy non-production quality episodes to for him to watch he had, he had nothing and so a lot of the stuff terrence dicks had to do he had to sort of interpret or you know maybe go on memory whatever and uh, I'm sure there was some very, you know, it would be very interesting to read that now. I hadn't thought about that now that the the story's out there and see how different it is. Huh. Well, that was that was one of the things that, you know, I, I prior to doing this, because I knew that we were either going to, when we did Trot and we were either going to do this one or uh, Enemy of the World. And you shot me off a, a, like an audio, or not audio book, but a digital book of it. And uh, I read through that and that really got me jonesed for wanting to do this. And, and specifically also because this was an enemy that the that we haven't really covered i mean we've done cybermen and we've done dalek episodes and we've talked all about this but not only do we get the yetis in this but we also get the great intelligence which is one of the characters who's come back really predominantly in the new series do we want to talk about uh, the idea behind the great intelligence and the doctor's uh, battle against it okay so he's basically there's this floating mind that has no corporeality to him and he has to use a host in order to 
whatever his goal is, take over the world or get all the ice cream or whatever. I don't know. Um, and the Yeti are these basically automatons that he uses as his hands and, and uh, limbs to, to make things happen. And the, the, two, the two ideas of the Yeti and the Great Intelligence are linked in the two stories they appear in the classic series. Um, I don't know if he comes back in the novels, if he has the Yeti with him there or not. But whenever he comes back in the modern series, he no longer has Yeti, but he does have things like Snowman and other things going for him. Yeah, I think that's a nice sort of callback to, to this. It's not specifically because I just put that together. Oh, my Snowman. God. I didn't put that together either. Do, do you think do you think the Snowman are just there to be a more sort of updated version of the Yeti, a more CGI uh, graphics intensive one? Because I honestly, I think give a good suit I wouldn't. I wouldn't see a problem with them bringing the Yeti back as a minion of the Great Intelligence in the new series. I think it'd have to be with a big furry monster like that. You'd probably have to do something CGI like the Wolf from Tooth and Claw. I think somebody sat down and said, "Oh wow, what a clever pun that is with the Snowman." I'm going to use that in our next Christmas special with the Great Intelligence. Yeah, I. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't doubt that for a moment. I'm so embarrassed that I did not put that together. <laughs> well, we're, we're sitting in the blush cheeks camp together there, Sean, because I didn't, uh, uh, Chad, because I didn't get that either. Um, yeah, the great intelligence is, it's interesting. He, he's appeared, I don't, I'm going to talk about expanded universe stuff later, but the, the gist of, of the great intelligence, he does sort of, he's sort of an all powerful mental energy being, which isn't that far off the nesting consciousness, which would come later in the, in the Tron area, which control the Autons. It's sort of that unknowable Star Trek sort of alien, you know, the, the, the consciousness where usually the Doctor can go hand-to-hand with somebody, this is one he can't. So that makes for an interesting character. And I personally, I prefer this version of the Great Intelligence versus the the one that came in the new series. That's probably you know upset a bunch of New Who fans, but I I wasn't too wowed with the Great Intelligence in the, in the New Who stuff. The the Whispermen and the and the and the Snowmen were fun, but in the long run, I'd much rather have seen the Yetis. Much rather have seen the Yetis. Mm-hmm. In fact, in the in that episode in the in the Matt Smith one, he does he basically gives them a, a lunchbox, gives the Great Intelligence a lunchbox with the map to the London Underground in 1967. And he says the underground was a key strategic weakness in metropolitan living. Basically, he's suggesting to the great intelligence they attacked the underground. Is it, you know, so the implication is that the, the 11th Doctor caused this episode to happen, the, of the Web of Fear to happen. Hmm. Kind of goofy. It's sort of more of a goofy fun thing than anything. But That is fun. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, go ahead. I was going to say that wouldn't be beyond the realm possibility of uh, Moffat seeding that to sort of sync back up to this. But yeah, that's that's kind of oh, it, w- it wasn't even like a veiled hint. If you go back and watch it, you'd be like, oh, that's what he's talking about. Because mm-hmm. he actually has these lines where he's rambling about the, the underground in 1967 specifically. You know, yes. it's like, OK, yeah. No and doubt. if you know what he's talking about, you get it. If you don't, it's just a random rambling. But it's nice little Easter egg. I like that. Yeah. Is that the sort of thing that some fans call fan wankery? Just the the random continuity additions that people do like that? Because I like that sort of thing. You know, I don't mind it. You know, it's it's not it's one of those things that's a nice little catch. You know, if you see if you if you're a fan and you see it, that's cool. You know, I don't. If it's, I guess it depends upon the subtlety that it's put in there. If it's overt and they're like shining a spotlight on it, then yes, I'd call it fan wankery. But if it's just a throwaway little line like this was, I wouldn't have a problem with it. Here's the answer, John. 
oh, it's absolutely fan wankery because it is. It's right there in the spotlight. You can't miss it. However, I'm sure Stephen Moffat wouldn't say that because you know he's the executive producer and all that. But the fan fact is, he's a fan. Mm-hmm. So he was putting fan wankery in there for himself, but probably sees it as more artistic. I'm sure. <laughs> Um, before we move forward on, there was a few other. I have, I have some other notes about the stories in general I wanted to bring up. Like, did you guys notice episode two was completely doctorless? I did. I thought about that as we were watching mm-hmm. it. That maybe I don't know if he was sick or that was his vacation week or what. It was vacation yeah. week. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense. So they used the scene from him in the previous episode. You know, in the in the cliffhanger. So you did see the doctor in the episode, but it was really the footage from the previous week in the cliffhanger, and then he's not in the whole rest of the thing. I didn't notice it till I don't remember, it was my wife or my stepson were watching that particular episode with me, and they're like, where's the doctor in all this? I'm like, oh my gosh, you're absolutely right. So Speaking of the scene where the doctor sort of exits at the end of episode one, there's supposed to be an explosion that knocks him out, but the explosion stays inside the webbing and pulses through the credits. So yeah. it sort of takes away the danger of the explosion if you watch the explosion not happen. Well, you know, in the 1960s, they probably just figured it was still happening or that was just the way they represented it. They probably didn't really realize that, you know? Yeah, it was kind There's of so like the show. it was kind of like the police squad ending, you know, where everyone froze and, oh, you know, geez. things just kept going on. <laughs> I mean, the sets would fall down and the monkey would run. Oh, those <laughs> yeah, were so people funny. were pouring coffee. It'd be spilling yep. over. And yeah, so, yeah. Also, speaking of the end credits, did did you notice at the end credits how there was that weird bubbly, you know, foamy thing happening in the the end credits there? I liked that, but I wasn't sure what it was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Apparently, that's supposed to be the the web spreading, but they never did that in any other Tron episode. How bizarre. Yeah, I was going to say, the, again, since my experience with these episodes or the Trotton era is kind of limited, I was like, is that just you know, sort of like the, the opening credits where we get the weird uh, effects on the Doctor Who logo? But no, if that was specific for this episode, that that's kind of neat to sort of represent the idea of the web. Mm-hmm. Very, very odd. I, I just I had to go online and go, what the hell is that about? Because I'd never noticed it in a Trotten episode before. And sure enough, it's just for this one. So. And just how many Trotten stories do we have death by soap suds? <laughs> a lot. A lot. I thought this, when, when they showed the soap suds, I was like, oh, it's uh, Fury from the Deep all over again. Or whichever right. One it was. And the one with the, 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 the seeds. Yeah. Yeah. I forget what that one's called. They, they, they invested a lot of money, money in that bubble machine, I think, is what happened. Yeah. And they just had to find ways to uh, to make that work. <laughs> yeah, they also invested a lot of money in the saran wrap pyramid. That was that was a really nice... <laughs> I, I, it looked really cool until he tried to get in. It started like bul- bulging and falling over almost. <laughs> I remember uh, reading in the... Uh, again, I read the novelization. I, I, I had this vision of this giant pyramid and sort of harkening back to add on... <laughs> on the new who that kind of idea but looking at this it's like it's just a couple of pieces of you know particle you know little pieces of wood holding together a pyramid with wrapped with saran wrap and yeah it didn't really didn't really hold up all that well sadly it's not gozer's pyramid from the end of ghostbusters that's like the big set behind her it's not that awesome is it you think they uh they got the idea for the the louvre the big pyramid at the louvre from this i think that inspired them um there's a couple of scenes I really dug, like when they first, when Jamie first steps on down into the subway, and the doctor thinks he might be on the third rail. That scene is full of a lot of yelling, and screaming, and confusion, and I really liked it. And I don't know whether it was intentional, this where it was, you know, maybe it was bad directing or not, but it just, it felt like real life. 
like when you're in a you're in a panicky situation and there's a lot of people yelling and confusion you don't know what's going on if that scene where they're yelling at each other just felt very real to me and uh, it just struck me as wow that was really great I really liked that bit and and when I say by bad directing I mean I don't know whether it was an accidental that it became it felt so real and confusing or whether that was on purpose but it was very nice it as was well as, done as far as the third episode being missing you know there was a lot of rumor that they were actually going to animate this episode for the DVD I was hoping that they would yeah they did for um, a previous Trotten episode called The Invasion where they animated that missing episode and uh, a lot of the fans were hoping they would and, and ultimately they'd tell us now. I kind of wish they had done the animation if you've ever seen the animation for The Invasion which is a Cyberman episode it's really cool how they animate uh, Trotten and the Cyberman and stuff that would have been really just totally boss now you well, mentioned- they charged the same price for this episode as they did for the others if I remember right I bought, the, I bought it as a collection but I think they were all $1.99 episodes including the reconstruction and if it's just a reconstruction it seems like they should have discounted that a bit I think that's a good point you know, I'm I'm thinking that probably because you mentioned uh, a while back with this episode that they released just a sort of blank or, or a sort of you know bare bones DVD, and that you know what they usually do is eventually they'll re-release it here in you know a, like six months to a year as a special edition. I'm wondering if we're wait maybe they're waiting for the special edition to do an animated version of that. Could be. Um. Do you think? Well, I think. Well, I think that would be awesome. Possible? I. Th- I think that's awesome. I think they've abandoned the animation idea. Okay. Um, even though I think that would be friggin' brilliant. But yeah, I think what they'll do is one with commentaries and stuff like that. I know I've said this before on the show, but I have to brag. I, at, at Gallifrey, they had both Fraser Hines and Deborah Watling, and they put them down on a couch in front of a giant screen and screened the last episode of Web of Fear, and we actually got to see a like almost like DVD commentary with Toby Hedoak in person as they just went through and talked through the episode. That was so cool. Neat. That's me bragging. So <laughs> take it. Suck it, nerds. Um, did you guys notice the In the Heat of the Night poster in the subway? Yes. Where they changed the name to Blockbusters? Yeah, I was going to say because uh, the, I'd never heard of it. Maybe it's just the, the British naming. Do, the, do you think they'd rename the film for that? Or do you think it was specifically because they couldn't get the licensing for the the name of the movie in the heat of the night yes, was it a name change or was it saying here are blockbusters here's a movie poster hmm. no it was it was they specifically changed the name of the film so they didn't get in trouble okay, okay. makes sense which is weird though because like if, if if the movie if it was all a set i don't know why they bothered to put that poster in there you know like if they're filming in a real tube sure they would have to work around it because those posters brought maybe that's why they put the poster because that's the kind of thing that was hanging up in post in you know in subways at the time but i just thought it was interesting that they went to the effort of hanging a real poster and then giving it a fake name very strange you know dykes trying to trying to make the uh set as realistic as they possibly could because you know even though you could tell the sets were a bit limited they they used the them traveling through you know the the tracks of the underground quite frequently walking back and forth but the sets were pretty good looking for the time and i also want to comment on the fact that the overall filming of this episode uh, you know i don't know whether they did restoration for it or not but just the overall look of this episode was just really brilliant the, the images were sharp and crisp it didn't have that sort of fuzzy hazy look that you'll get like in third doctor and fourth doctor episodes where the video de- quality is degraded and all that so I, I was really impressed with the look the overall look of the show 
Yeah, the vast majority of it was shot on sets. You'd never really go to film where you get that grainy quality. There are a couple spots, I think, in the tunnels where they went to film for whatever reason. Maybe it was because of the Yeti, I don't know. But uh, the vast majority of this got to use, you know, video, video cameras on on their shooting, and so it look it looks great. Yep. You gotta wonder, like, this is this is stupid me, but like, part of me was like, gosh, the sets are really realistic, and. You know, they, they, they went to this effort to tell everyone that they didn't, you know, film in the tubes. Then I started wondering, maybe they really did film in the tubes, and they just lied to the transit authority. I actually wrote that down because I, I heard the story you told, but I had forgotten it. And everything looks so great, but they probably just have three tunnels they keep on using over and over again. And it's funny because at one point Victoria says, you know, all these tunnels look the same to me. And I bet she goes, can you walk through the same two tunnels for the last <laughs> six weeks of your life? Tom Baker episodes are famous for that, like running down corridors. Just put the camera in a different place, same corridor. Running, running, running. <laughs> but I just – part of me did wonder, like, I wonder if they really did film in the tubes. They just lied. And, they, and to this day they're perpetuating the lie, but probably not. My my fourteen year old noticed something that he he really wanted me to mention on the show was uh, when the when the doctor jury rigs the control sphere and makes it voice activated. The two things he was most impressed with is he said the doctor it says that they put Siri in the control sphere, which I thought was <laughs> pretty clever, and uh, that he named the Yeti Fred. He thought that was hysterical when he started calling the Yeti Fred. A <laughs> little bit for the kids. So. Freddy the Yeti. Oh, there's the alliteration we needed. <laughs> There is one spot around that same episode, episode four, um, where Dr. Travers, I forget if she was captured or something. She's she's in pain and she's moaning a lot. And if I didn't know this was Doctor Who, that sounds like a very different kind of moan. <laughs> I don't know. She was kind of cute. Dr. She was. She, she was cutie. So she had that very sexy 60s smart lady look, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, smart you know, or not as far as uh, 60s sort of fashion. Victoria's outfit, I I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> it was pretty out there. Yeah, that definitely didn't seem like Victorian England type thing. This uh, it did kind of have the the mini dress type thing, and yeah, she had she had nice legs. I I will give her that. Well, they they um they got her used to short shorter dresses in her very first story out of her home in the Tomb of the Cybermen in the very first episode. She's standing there, you know, sort of looking awkward, and the doctor and Jamie go back to her, and they're like, Victoria, how do you like the dress? I know it's a bit short. You'll get used to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and by this point, she's all about, you know, modern clothes. Oh, yeah, that's true. It's, I do like the part where she comes out to fashion the clothes, and the doctor, is, just, in typical fashion, is completely oblivious to the fashion. I love that. Because uh, just the doctor's always like, hmm, okay. Just usually doesn't notice these kinds of things. I mean, he's smart enough to tell Jamie to give her a compliment, but he's normally just, you know, completely oblivious to that type of thing. Also, I'm sorry, I just stumbled across one more note. Patrick Trotton was eating a sandwich in that scene. And that you just, you never see the doctor, you very rarely see the doctor eat. You know, that's true. I do remember, is this the scene where they're on the TARDIS and they're being, uh, they're being held by the web. Am I, am yeah. I thinking right? Well, it's it's leading into that. Yeah. Okay. It's, yeah, that was right. kind of that was he, kind of odd. Jamie finishes his sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Weird. As far as why they're wearing what they're wearing, I guess it's just leftover outfits from the Enemy of the World. Yeah, well, which the means they had those same costumes for twelve weeks of filming. Well, the Doctor's outfit always stayed the same. Well, yeah, that's true. And ja- actually, Jamie's did too. I mean, he might change his shirt, but he always wore the kilt. 
Well, and at the beginning of the show, we also see uh, the Doctor with the, that band-aid on the side of his face, which is, I guess, with the way that they distinguished between him and the character of Salamander in the... Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and I think throughout, you know, a little bit later in the show, the bandage got removed simply because, well, Gallifrey and healing factor, I don't know, whatever. You don't, don't need that plot device anymore. Exactly. exactly. So... Man, Tron is so good. I'm sorry, I keep thinking about those scenes in the TARDIS, you know, with with the stuff with Victoria and the whole the joke with the blinking light, you know, where they're going on and they, they see it and he does it. And it's you know kind of a goofy, fun thing. And later on, he's jury rigging devices and he's playing his recorder. He is he's a brilliant doctor. He is. So I do like when he pulls so out good. the recorder because he had that all the time early on, and and this mm, this might be the only episode where he has the recorder that we actually have. Really? Power of the Daleks, he plays all the time, and we don't have any of that. Yeah. I, I'm just saying that off the top of my head. I could be completely wrong, but I'm just trying to think of other times we've seen him actually playing the recorder in motion. The, the idea, Sean, there is the Doctor would play the recorder to help him think. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of one of his, you know, every, his quirks, one of his, you know, identifiables. In fact, his action figure comes with a recorder. I mean, that kind of thing. Nice. So. Just like Bill Clinton's action figure comes with a saxophone. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> As far as the Yeti go, do you guys know any idea who uh, one of the actors inside the Yeti costumes was? I didn't recognize any of the four names. John Levine, who went on to be Sergeant Benton. From the really? Oh. So here you've got the first appearance of the Brigadier, or of Lethbridge Stewart, acting side by side with the first, well, I don't know if it's his first appearance, but the actor who goes on to play Sergeant Benton. <laughs> so how cool That's is that? cool. My my daughter and I are watching, and my, my son too are watching through John Pertwee's stories, and we're in the Ambassadors of Death, which is his first season, but it's not his first story, but this is Sergeant Benton when he finally becomes part of Unit, because he's not in those first couple of Pertwee stories, okay. which I was surprised, because he's such a staple of Unit later on. How, do you, how does your family like John Pertwee? He's the doctor. You know, this first season of Pertwee is a bit slow going. Um, I thought that the Auton story had a lot going for it, but uh, we're on the Ambassadors of Death, which is a lot of space shots, a lot of talking on the radio, mm-hmm. and there's, I don't know, I know that later he gets more action involved because he has like the v- Venusian Akito. judo or something like that, and, and other stuff, and I, there are lots of about Pertwee that I remember liking, but not a lot of it is in this first season that he did. Interesting. Okay. Well, as you progress, I would love to hear how your kids like or don't like him. Because I'm always fascinated by how kids react to Doctor Who. Like, you know, my my, my kids, uh, my stepson has completely accepted Patrick Trotton as the Doctor. He has yes. no trouble with that whatsoever. And it's just funny, like you know, some kids who grew up with you know Matt Smith or David Tennant to see them glom onto a previous Doctor. You know, I think I think my stepson's probably most comfortable with Patrick Trotton and Tom Baker of all the previous Doctors. He has a couple of comedy moments in this first season that I just wish he had to do more of those. Like in whenever he's in the hospital, when he first shows up and he finds his shoes, he like gloms onto his shoes and clutches them in his bed. And, and my, <laughs> my kids love that he was needing his shoes. And they, they raced in the wheelchair down the streets of London that or wherever he was. That was great. And in the Ambassadors of Death, there's a bit where he and Liz Shaw, in fact, I think Keenan here is going to say something. Go ahead. When, when your daughter is trying to get away from the from, from that place, it, I laughed. You laughed when he was trying to get away from that place? Yeah, you did. And <laughs> the doctor and Liz Shaw were standing on both sides of the uh, of the um, TARDIS console. He was trying to get it to work, and they kept popping in and out of time and switching places and stuff. And that was fun. But a lot of this first season is just kind of slow. Have you guys got to Inferno yet? 
that's next, and I'm looking forward to that because I have fond memories of it. Yeah, I love Inferno. So awesome. I've seen all of um, Pertwee at least once before, but it's been years ago, and so I'm watching it with the kids now. Well, some of our Who True Freaks, uh, uh, what, do you, what, what am I trying to say? Contributors um, either haven't seen much Pertwee or aren't huge Pertwee fans, so hopefully we can get to convert them and change them over to, to starting to like more of it. Yes. So. So real quick, wrapping up here, continuity stuff. Um, yes, the surprisingly, the Great Intelligence and the Yeti didn't appear that much in Expanded Universe stuff, because which shocked me a lot, because when you think about you know, the main enemies of the Doctor from the old days, the Daleks, the Cybermen, you know, you very quickly get to the Yeti, the Autons, the, the Centaurans, people like that, and so it was so, sort of surprising that it took that they didn't appear as much as you would think. Yes, a Yeti appeared in the Five Doctors. Um, there was a novel called Millennial Rights where the Great Intelligence came back. It's a Sixth Doctor with Mel books, so nobody read it. Um, then there's that was a joke for you, Sixth Doctor fans. Anyway, then there was, believe it or not, a direct-to-video, fan-produced uh, movie called Downtime, which features the return of the Yeti and the Great Intelligence. It also features Victoria Waterfield. It features, uh, I want to say Professor Travers is in it, and also um, Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart's daughter. It's not the same actress or character that appeared in the the in the current series, but this this was a fan-produced film. They got the rights to use the Yeti, so Victoria shows up, Professor Travers shows up, the Yeti show up, the Great Intelligence. It's okay. Uh, it, at the time, you know, when Doctor Who was off the air, you know, in the wilderness years, this was amazing. You know, it was like, oh, it's New Who, hooray. So we Did you mention Liz Slayton? Is she in it too? Yes. Oh hmm. gosh, I got, you think I'd remember that? I own the VHS tape. I just haven't watched it in 15 years. Okay, I forgot Liz Layton was in that. Okay, and they also adapted it into a book called Downtime. So th- that was probably the Yetis and, and the Great Intelligence's biggest reappearance until, of course, you get um, the stuff with Matt Smith and um, Stephen Grant, right? Yeah, Stephen Grant, and oddly enough, it was what Ian McKellen who played the voice of uh, Great Intelligence, if I'm remembering correctly. Do you really? I think so. Yeah, that was one of the things. I know either Stephen or Andy made a comment about you know them kind of misusing McKellen's voice for you know it was kind of a missed opportunity to have McKellen on the show as the voice of the Great Intelligence. I'm pretty sure, pretty certain that was who voiced him in the new serial. Could be. Um, you are correct. You're absolutely All right. There you go. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's kind of score one for the team. I just have to mention with Stephen Grant appearing as the great intelligence. Some people may not know Stephen Grant is also, wait for it, the ninth doctor. Oh, yes. Oh, uh, yes. Wasn't he in that? Uh, oh, it's not. I can't remember what it was. The sort of uh, scream of the Shalka. Okay. It was a web. Basically, you know, in the wilderness years, they finally gave up on New Who happening. They said, it's not going to happen, so we're going to regenerate Paul, um, Paul McGann's Doctor into a new Doctor. He's going to be all animated. It'll be animated webisodes on the BBC website. We're going we're gonna to hire Stephen Grant to pose for some photos and stuff like that. We're going to get his likeness and draw this new Doctor based on Stephen Grant's likeness. He's going to voice some audio adventure stuff for the cartoon, and they're going to produce a web- basically a, a sort of like Flash version of... Uh, meaning the, the computer program Flash version of Doctor Who, and it was all going to be with him. And they announced it, they recorded it, and between the time of them actually rolling it, it was either right, right after they rolled it out or just before they rolled it out, they announced real Doctor Who was coming back. 
they hadn't hired Christopher Eccleston at that point. So, but there was a very short window of time where Stephen Grant was the quote unquote ninth Doctor. Mm-hmm. So I I hate to roll you back a second because I I, I, I wicked downtime when you mentioned it. So I'm just kind of looking at it. We were talking about that show introduced the character of Kate Lethbridge Stewart, who would later become canon. Wait a minute, that was supposed to be the same character. Yes, different actress. See, I, I knew it was I knew it was Lethbridge's daughter, but I just assumed they ignored that for the new series. Her name was Kate. I didn't realize her name that. was Kate. The, the new the new series used it. I didn't know that. Now, well. Wow. Okay. I I'm blown away. But I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to pull out that VHS tape and watch it now. It's been so long. What's what's VHS? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It, it, it's the cousin of UHF. Okay, that makes sense. Right. Now. Right. Right. Yeah, that's right. The Brigadier's in it too. Oh my gosh. All right, folks. Look for downtime. Again, there is a novelization out there. Uh, you can find it. You know, I bet you. Now I, I bet it's on YouTube or something. Actually. Uh, and the, the, the same group did Dimos Rising, I think. Yep. So you got Nicholas Courtney, Liz Layden, Deborah Watling, and Jack Watling all together, brought back together for this thing. So I'm definitely going to have to rewatch this. God, it's been so long. I bought it basically, watched it, and I don't know that I watched it again. So 1995, direct-to-video, yep, by Real Time Pictures. <laughs> Look at that. All right. Sorry. Okay, do we have anything else that we want to talk about before we wind this up? I just, I just thought it was funny that at the end of the episode, at the end of the story... Um, they're trying to find the TARDIS in the tunnels. And I just imagine the next story opens. The whole first episode is them wandering subway tunnels trying to find the TARDIS. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that would be a nice callback, I guess. I'm just thrilled we got to watch this Patrick Trotton episode. I think it's so much fun. I think, again, he's a great doctor. I think if you haven't seen any Patrick Trotton, this is a really nice one to watch. Uh, it's a little long maybe for a new user, new watcher, but all these back then were that length. Um, great moments in it. And thank goodness we did this instead of a Colin Baker episode. I'm just saying. And it really is a fun show. I mean, the Tomb of the Cybermen was another one that was lost for a long time and then found, and it had been built up in people's minds. And I think for a lot of people, it was a little bit of a letdown. I think no. this was just the opposite. This was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing and fun to watch. Yeah, to be honest, even though there was a lot of padding, you know, them walking around the tunnels with uh, different characters, I didn't for one moment feel bored with this. I, there was no pro- there was no point in time when I was watching this and going, get on with it. I mean, it, it was really engaging. Uh, for a six-part one, a lot of times in the other ones, you feel like, yeah, it's just running on halls. But this kept me engaged, and I think it's a tribute to the Patrick Trotton character you know, and his portrayal of the Doctor, because it really sold the character. And I really hope that eventually they do release, or if they have found more of the Patrick Trotton missing serials, they are able to release them and put them out, because this was just a great find. And plus, also, since we're on the Two True Freaks site, I would like to plug, if you do want to see this, please, please, please go to twotruefreaks.com and hit the Amazon banner and click on Amazon and buy this from Amazon.com. So it is definitely worth a addition to your Doctor Who catalog. If you use that Two True Freaks link, folks, it won't cost you a penny. Not, mm-hmm. not an extra dime, but it does give uh, Two True Freaks a little bit of kickback from Amazon. So, exactly. And after all, where else, are you, where else are you going to see the legendary abominable snowmen from the mountains of Tibet shooting laser guns with webbing in them in the subways of London? I mean, where else can you see that sort of thing? Exactly. <laughs> well, if, if that's all we have for this time out, anyone got any final things they want to say? Or are we good? Oh, Jamie, that is a big one, isn't it? <laughs> See you next time on an episode of Who Drew Freaks, everyone. Bye. Goodbye.
Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. We were finally invited aboard one of these spacecraft, which landed near Ann Arbor, Michigan, on October the 24th of 1954. This is a drawing of the craft. As I was leaving the craft, the commander, Soltek, said, soon others of your people will be able to have an experience similar to this.